The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, where we bring you the world's most brilliant thinkers, experts, and executives to talk about how to make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits. So every now and then, I like to bring CEOs of best companies to work for in the country to talk about their leadership, their culture, and how they do business. And I couldn't be more excited to chat with today's guest, JT McCormick. JT has a background story unlike most CEOs, and I really mean this, a story that comes from extreme hardship and adversity as chronicled in his book entitled, I Got There, How a Mixed Race Kid Overcame Racism, Poverty, and Abuse to Arrive at the American Dream. JT will share how, about how his upbringing, being raised in poverty and in the slums of Dayton, Ohio, where he, by the way, had multiple stints in the juvenile justice system. He's going to tell you also about how he barely graduated high school and, and the fact that he has no college degree. And so no one, no one expected him to succeed, but succeed he did. And he's going to share his journey from how he started out scrubbing toilets at a restaurant to eventually becoming president of a multi-million dollar software company and now CEO of a multi-million dollar book publishing startup that I personally have covered in my ink column. And I absolutely admire and love this company and that is Scribe Media. Now, Scribe Media was recently ranked the number one top company culture in America by Entrepreneur Magazine. And this year, as I dug around for more info on them, I also found out that they've also been ranked number 19 in a great place to work, best workplaces in the great state of Texas. In addition to his role leading Scribe Media, JT pays it forward by mentoring at-risk youth in the juvenile justice system and low economic areas. And he currently serves as a board member for Conscious Capitalism and the Started Up Foundation. His story and work has been featured all over the place. CNBC, Entrepreneur, Forbes, Inc. And I can't wait to dig into this conversation. JT, truly an honor to have you join us. Welcome to the Love and Action Podcast. Sir, how are you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. We always start these conversations, and this is kind of cool because I really didn't prep you on this, so we're doing <laughs> sort of like right off the cuff. Yes. We start with a gratitude moment, so I wanted to ask you, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? That's easy. The fact that you wake up. If you catch me any given time of the day and someone says, how are you doing? Hey, JT, how are you? I am excellent. I'm always excellent. And people say, wow, how is that? If you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the ground, you got to be excellent. And I look at that. I literally was on a call before this podcast with you and someone said, JT, how do you do that? And I said, it's simple. Right now, I know someone's not going to get out of bed this morning. Right now, someone's standing in a line for a box of food because of their circumstances. Maybe they're unemployed, can't feed their kids. So I don't have those circumstances, so it's an excellent day. And mm -hmm. to take that a step further, anything that's not excellent in my life, I'm the only one that can change it. So there's no need to complain about it. Just get to work. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Let's get acquainted, getting you acquainted with our listeners. Tell us a little bit about what would you say your purpose is? Not necessarily, you know, as we have our purpose in our workplaces and in our executive role, but perhaps the grander scheme of thing, what would you say is your why? My why over the years has developed. At first, my personal why was really financial. Mm. Given the way I grew up in very poor, U.S. poor, because there's a different poor outside of this country. So I grew up very poor in this country. 
And so my why became financial, but that changed over time. And now my why is to be a phenomenal husband, a phenomenal father, a phenomenal CEO. And then I would say fourth on the list is to give back to the communities of which I came from, you know, where I grew up, there were three options out of my circumstances, rapper, athlete, and drug dealer. No one told us about the fourth option, entrepreneurship, business, capitalism. And so I have a deep passion to go back and mentor, teach, coach those individuals and say, hey, there's this fourth option out there that no one told us about in its business. It's great. And you can build a family. You can get out of these communities. You can build a life for yourself. So that's really what I'm passionate about now is teaching, coaching, and mentoring the communities that I come from. Yeah. We'll touch on that a little bit later because I'm really curious about the impact of you mentoring these at-risk youth. But let's frame this conversation by starting at the beginning, and that is your upbringing, which is a heart-wrenching story. And I hope that you don't get tired of sharing your <laughs> some of the major themes of your childhood, but I would love to hear some of them. Can you talk to us through what happened? I came into the world. My father was a black pimp and drug dealer in the 1970s. When I say pimp, he was a real life pimp. He put women on the street corner. They sold their bodies and my dad took every dollar from them. And along the way, he also managed to father 23 children. So I'm one of 23. And then my mother, my mother's white and she was an orphan. She was raised in the 1950s institutional orphanage where the kids were neglected, beat, abused. And when she turned 17 years old, they gave her $20, a suitcase, and they said, good luck to you. There's the world. And she had never been outside of those four walls. Unfortunately for my mother, one of the first people she met was my fast-talking, well-dressed, quite a bit older father. And so here I am. I was born, and my mother raised me in the 70s. I'm an old guy. I'm 49. And... It was not nice being mixed race in the 70s. Black people didn't like me because I was half white. White people didn't like me because I was half black. And so I always had a hard time fitting in, you know, being called everything from zebra to Oreo cookie to half breed. And I spent three different occasions in juvenile and I was separated from my mom for a while. My mom was in Texas. My dad was in England. And I bounced around through the juvenile system from relative to relative. I was homeless at 13. And in fact, things got so bad for me as far as education. When I did finally reunite with my mother at the age of 15, she took me to be tested. And I was testing on a fifth and sixth grade level at the age of 15. So needless to say, when graduation time rolled around, I didn't have enough credits. I didn't graduate high school. I ended up having to get my GED. I have no college degree, and here I am. Yeah. JT, some people, as I'm listening to this story, some people grow up and they, they're never able to bounce back from that horrendous experience. You know, they go through homes and foster homes, and, and they, you know, some of them are institutionalized. They just never recover from it. And so they become a victim. How were you able to overcome all of this? That's a very powerful word. I refused to be a victim. And I believe, and this was adapted really as a kid. I'll give you a story. I remember there was a time when my mother and I were standing in line waiting for our monthly allotment, our free handout of food stamps, welfare. And an older white lady looked down at me. She looked at my mom while we were standing in line. And then she spit in my mother's face and she called her a nigger lover. And at eight years old, it hit me. I realized, ah, okay, everyone's not going to like me in life. And I can't do anything about that. I'm mixed race. I'm half white. I'm half black. I'm no more proud of being half black than I am of being half white. But everyone is not going to like me. So at age eight, I remember making the decision, okay, I'm not going to spend my time trying to make everyone like me because it's just not going to happen. And that was a great lesson for me early on because so many people spend their life trying to impress other people, make other people like them. And a lot of people don't learn that lesson until high school, college, or God forbid, your first career that you realize everyone's not going to like you. So I learned that lesson at eight years old. But the other powerful lesson I learned is belief in myself. At the end of the day, if no one else loved me, if no one else believed in me, I believed in myself. 
And so I knew I could look in the mirror and say, okay, I love me. I believe in me and we can get the hell out of here. Somehow, some way we are going to get the hell out of here. And it's interesting because so many people will say, oh, JT, you had every reason not to succeed. And I push back and I say, no, I had every reason to succeed because if I can make it through all of that, this business thing's kind of easy. So I just tend to look at things from a positive standpoint. I don't do negativity. And when I say that, I don't have rose-colored glasses. I know the world has challenges, there's issues, there's problems, but I choose to figure out how can we make a positive out of a negative situation. Yeah. So at what point did you experience that shift from being a victim to, okay, I can change my life? Were you a teen or was that in your early 20s or... I have stories through my life where there's certain moments. I'll give you an example. So I've got four children, six, five, three, and one. And they're growing up completely different than I grew up. So their life is just filled of great life and fun and love and hugs. But I had moments that really stood out to me because there weren't a lot of positives in my childhood. And one of the greatest things my father ever did for me, I was 10 years old, we were in Houston, Texas, and he drove me through a community, one of the wealthiest communities in America, it's called River Oaks. And it was the first time I had seen 10, 15, $25 million homes that one family lived in these homes. They, they were bigger than the public housing projects I lived in. And it blew me away. And I had never seen that. And so it showed me what was possible. And I remember as a kid looking at those houses, saying to myself, okay, I'm going to have one of those one day. I want one of those. So it showed me possibility. And, you know, go back to your earlier question, that became the driver for me is a lot of times people just have to know what's possible. If you don't know what's possible, how am I supposed to aspire to be it? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because still at that point, it was more about sort of recovering from your economic hardship. So the motivators there were financial in nature. And totally. Then, all right. So track with me here. So give us a picture of then now the journey from, you know, you talk about scrubbing toilets to eventually <laughs> becoming the CEO of your company now. What did you experience along that journey? And what were some of the lessons learned? Because it was so chaotic, you know, being with my dad from time to time on the weekends, you know, you never knew if the police were going to raid his house and law enforcement was going to bust in and raid it. You never knew if you were going to see women being beat, collecting from prostitutes. So I grew up constantly being observant, paying attention, know your surroundings. And it was a survival mechanism. You had to keep your head moving to know what was going on. So again, for my dad, one of the greatest things he had ever said to me was, whatever you do in life, be the best at it. And he said, if you're going to sweep streets for a living, be the best street sweeper. Now, he could have given me a little, you know, something more to aspire to, <laughs> but, but the lesson stuck. And when I was cleaning those toilets, I was 18 years old and they were filthy. I had to come in every day, clean the toilets from the night before and at the restaurant. And I remember standing there looking at the toilets one day, just vividly. I still remember this moment. And I said to myself, okay, if this is my job right now, I am going to have the cleanest toilets in the state of Texas. These are going to be the cleanest toilets in America. And I took great pride in my attention to detail, which I learned from my Uncle Bobby. And that became my mantra, if you will, for everything I did was I was going to be the best at it. And so I progressed through life. I started working at an insurance company. Funny story. I love this story. So I met the insurance company and I'm the mailboy. I file papers and that's my job. So I'm pushing my little cart and I come across this conference room and it has a sign. It says free lunch 401k. Well, all I saw was free lunch. And I didn't even know what 401k was. I thought it was the number to the conference room. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, well, free lunch, I'm going. And I went to that free lunch and learn. And I heard two of the greatest words in the history of mankind, compound interest. And from that day on, I just immersed myself in understanding the stock market, how you can turn a dollar into $2, 10 into 100. And I was hooked on the stock market and all things investing and compound interest. So from there, 
I got into payday loans, then I got into mortgages, then after the mortgage crisis hit, I started at a software company, the lowest paid person, because I went broke in 2007. Let me tell the whole picture. I went broke, negative broke. I had to borrow money from my stepdad and my best friend to pay my rent. I went from having a million dollars saved to broke, negative broke, lost it all. And I remember starting at the software company. I was the lowest paid person in the company. There were 13 of us. I sat on a fold-out metal chair in a storage closet making my sales calls. Two and a half years later, I became the president of the company, and we scaled that company from 13 people to well over 100 people with offices in Austin, Dallas, Houston, and Monterey, Mexico. And from there, here I am now at the publishing company. Yeah, yeah. We'll make the transition here in a minute. But as you developed into a leader... What did you learn about leadership itself? Because I think at some point, something shifted inside you that said, okay, it's no longer about the money. Did you experience that shift that caused you to see leadership in a new way? You know, actually, it wasn't a financial thing that made that shift to people first. Actually, what it was when I was at the software company, I was really good at what I did in software sales, but I was toxic. I should have been fired from that company 71 different times. I was toxic for the culture. I didn't even understand what culture was. All I knew was make it about me. It was about me. I sold here, make sure it happens, go develop some code, whatever it is that you do, I sold. And then I was promoted to EVP sales and marketing. So then I had a team and then I turned our team into a toxic team because then it became, okay, sales and marketing, we're going to do everything we can, but the hell to everyone else. And so I was very toxic from that point of view. And then I got promoted to president. And I remember when I walked into the office, my first day as president, and I looked around and I said, I'm responsible for all of this. And it really hit me that it was no longer about me, that I'm only as good as the great people I'm surrounded by. And so the focus then became, how do I find the greatest people to surround the company with? How do I find the greatest people to surround myself with? And that's really where that leadership moment came from, is realizing that, oh, this is all about putting people first. Yeah. So you experienced that shift to seeing people come first in your leadership role. And you know, leadership is not for everyone, JT. I mean, it's a courageous journey. And so the way that I see you in that journey, sometimes it's hard for us as leaders to get people on board with, you know, a compelling vision or purpose. So how do you inspire people to follow you, but not just follow you, but follow you enthusiastically? You know, for me, the first thing is if you are in a leadership position, you're only a leader if you serve, my opinion. So you hear a lot of people in this day and age, they talk about, Servant leadership. And some people just say it because it sounds good, but you truly have to serve. And I'll I'll give you a couple examples. We all have heard in corporations where they'll say, Who are your direct reports? Here at Scribe, if you are in a leadership role, you are a direct support. You don't have direct reports because if you're in leadership, your role is to serve and support. So everything is flipped upside down here, where if even if you go to our About Us page, and you're looking for the CEO. Think about this. You go to a most About Us pages in, in corporate America companies. First thing you see, C-suite executives, founders, chairmen, you know, all that good stuff. No. If you come to our About Us page and you're looking for the CEO, I'm at the very bottom of the page because my attitude is I am there to serve and support all those individuals who are actually doing the work. So I want you to see all of the people who are doing the work long before you make it down to me. So it's an attitude of truly putting people first. No one works for me. Everyone works with me. I'm no more important in this company than everyone else is to driving results. And the last piece I'll share on this, because it is a mentality. Last October, I kept hearing our tribe, we call ourselves a tribe. I kept hearing all the tribe members saying, yeah, you know, low-level tasks. We need to hire somebody to do those low-level tasks. And finally, I got fed up. It was a Friday. Everybody was in the office. And I said, okay, enough. Everyone come together. And we gathered around the lunch table. And I said, what the hell are these low-level tasks you all keep speaking of? 
I said, I know nothing of this. And I said, let me ask you all a few questions. Most of you have seen me take out the trash before. Everyone shakes their head. Yes. I said, some of you have even seen me clean out the storage closet. Yes. I said, okay. Some of you have even seen me iron our display at a conference. And they're like, yes. I said, so what are these low-level tasks you speak of? There's no such thing. They're only tasks, duties, and responsibilities. I said, so no longer refer to low-level tasks. I said, and here's the important lesson out of all of this. If you refer to someone's responsibility as a low-level task, how can you ever expect them to want to perform at the highest level when you've just demeaned what their role is? I go, no, no more low-level tasks. So it's that mentality that you have to share and keep consistent throughout the company that puts people first, that develops a culture where we're all in this together. That's a fantastic story. And yes, when I saw the website and I was scrolling, I was like, okay, where is JT? <laughs> And that's when I got clued in the fact that, okay, this guy is a servant leader because you're right. You were at the bottom of the page. That to me speaks clearly about what a servant leader does or is. So that brings us to Scribe Media, the company that you're now at the helm. And for people just learning about it, how would you describe the business of Scribe Media? We help authors write publish and market their books. So a couple of big names that we have worked with last year, we published the book for David Goggins. David Goggins had the most sought after book in America, second only to Michelle Obama. In fact, he's got the second most popular memoir in history. Again, second to Michelle Obama, so not bad company there. But then we've published books for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee recently, Nassim Taleb, who did Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, the actress Tiffany Haddish. But the great majority of our authors, you know, we've worked with over 1,700 authors now. The great majority are CEOs, business leaders, co-founders, consultants, and maybe people who want to leave a legacy piece. That's actually how I got to the company. I did my book as a legacy piece for my children. I wanted them to know where I came from. So that's what we do, how we do it. And oh, you said something earlier too. Yes, we did hit number 19 at one point in Texas, but this past May, we were listed as number two in the state of Texas. <laughs> nice, nice. I'm glad that you updated that for us. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about the culture. Entrepreneur Magazine ranked you number one top company culture in America. How does a company become number one in the category of culture? Again, there's no one thing. It's many little sprinkles of consistency done consistently every day and throughout, week in, week out, day in, day out. You heard me talk about a few of the pieces there. You know, no one works with me. No one works for me. People work with me. In fact, I'll even give you this. You hear most people talk about how they have an executive assistant. I refuse to call anyone my assistant. So Jay, who makes sure that I'm where I'm supposed to be at any given moment, her title is the CEO for the CEO. <laughs> so I, because I refuse to call anyone an assistant, I won't do it. And so it's a consistent effort in our culture. And there's a lot of things that go into this. I'm not a fan of your work self and your home self. It's your whole self. We all have to work. We all have to pay bills. We all need to save for retirement and everything in between. And, you know, there's over 50 of us here. I believe that if you're struggling with something in your personal life, of the 50 people that are here, there's someone that's probably struggled as well. So if we're open with one another to as much as you want to be, you know, this isn't forced upon people. There's people here who can assist you. So we look at the whole self of a person, and I'll give you a great example of this. You know this, in our country, think about how many people are struggling in financial debt and just the stress that comes with that. So one of our tribe members came to me one day. He said, JT, I'm going to take you up on your offer of whole self. And he said, I'm going to share something with you. It's a little bit embarrassing. He goes, I'm $30,000 in debt. My wife and I want to have another child. We want to buy a home. I said, okay, great. Let's knock it out. So he brought all his paperwork in. We sat down and within nine months, we got him out of debt. And imagine if you could do that at every place in America where there was somebody that could help you walk through a plan to get out of debt. Some people, you just don't know what you don't know. 
And that's how we serve our tribe members. We have an emergency fund. I read an article that drove this. I read an article that the average American does not have $400 in savings for an emergency. And man, that hit me. And I thought to myself, you know what? We can't have that. So we put $1,500 emergency fund into place, no questions asked. So if something comes up for you and you need to borrow $1,500, it's interest-free. You don't have to start paying it back for 90 days and you make payments on it over a nine-month time period until it's paid off. Mm, Fantastic. You know, I did a little digging around because I wanted to find out more about what Glassdoor, what your employees are saying about the culture at Glassdoor. Sometimes the you know, the message of an executive is not consistent with what the perceptions of the company is. So I went to, I I was curious and I'm digging around for dirt, right? And I can't (laughs) find it. I mean, it says that a hundred percent of the people working at Scribe Media would recommend it to a friend. (laughs) And by the way, your ratings in case you're curious is a hundred percent of the people actually approve of you as a CEO, by the way. (laughs) I appreciate that. that. (laughs) Again, I'm here to serve. I mean, you know, some of the greatest compliments I've received is, you know, that we're a business. So we've had to exit people at times for poor performance or whatever the reason. And some of my proudest moments are when people will email me back and say, hey, you know what, JT, thank you for exiting me with dignity, with respect. It was great. The words that you offered me when I was leaving. And again, it's put people first, regardless if they're still here with you, regardless if they're still part of the company or if you're exiting them out. They're still people. What, just because they don't work for you anymore, you don't care? I I just, in my attitude, that's just not the way to treat people. Mm. I want to talk about the fact that Scribe Media has its own culture Bible. And <laughs> I, man, that, that was so intriguing to me. And by the way, this is a living, breathing document that yes. is open to anybody in the public can actually view it. And so the culture Bible outlines the purpose, mission, values of the company. But what really got me in reading your culture Bible is dissecting that was, was the principles that guide the values. So it's the principles that guide your real life situations at work and how people make decisions right down to the individual contributor level. So I'm fascinated by it because while most companies have core values that really just end up as being words on a plaque hanging on the wall, but they're not lived out, your principles tell you clearly who you are, who you're not, what you believe in, what you don't believe in, and what actions you should or should not take. So I want to dissect a few of those principles if we can. For sure. Um, Good. So I picked out three, actually. But principle number two is do right by people. Do right by people. What's a good example of that? Like I said, when you're exiting someone, do right by people. For us, every person that we've had to exit from the company, and don't get me wrong, I understand every company is not in the same financial position that we are. But every person we've ever exited from the company, we provide a four-week severance to enable them to find their next opportunity. Now we could just let them go and say, hey, poor performance, you're out, see ya. But it's do right by people. Do right by people while they're working here. Do right by people from the very start of the interview. Everyone that applies with us gets a response from us, every person. And so to go back a little bit, when you just said our culture doc, the reason why it's public facing, here's what blows me away with companies. Most companies that you go work with, you don't know what they stand for until you're hired. You don't know the principles and values until you're hired. Then you do your onboarding the first week and maybe you see their mission statement on the wall or whatever it is. My attitude on this, our attitude is make the culture doc public facing so people can see what we stand for before you join the organization. Mm -hmm. You understand this is who we are. This is what we believe. We may save each other a lot of time because a lot of people may read our principles and values and say, not interested, don't want to be a part of that. Great. We don't want you here. So it's not for everyone, but we want you to know before you join the company. And so once you're in the company, we live by those values and principles. And so do right by people in all aspects of life. Like I said, from the emergency fund to showing people respect and the fact that they took time to apply with the organization, let's give them a reply. And it's just being respect and doing right by people throughout. Matter of fact, every person that reaches out to me on LinkedIn, even if it's just to connect, I personally respond to. 
Mm. You also live by principle number three, bring your whole self to work. Define what that means first and then give me an example of that. I don't believe in work-life balance. And here's why. I, I, so many people are like, what? I, what do you mean? Here's why. When you say work-life balance in America, right off the bat, everyone attacks work. Don't work 50, 60, 70 hours a week. Don't do your emails first thing in the morning. Don't start uh, looking at work. The four-day work week, it's work, work, work. Everyone attacks work when you say work-life balance. No one looks at themselves in the mirror on life balance. How about you not go to the bar Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday each week, and then have the nerve to wake up on Monday and be no closer to your dreams and goals? How about you not binge watch from Friday through Sunday, and then you're no closer to your dreams and goals? You know, and if you wake up on Monday and, and you can't fit into your clothes, don't be mad that you spent the weekend eating garbage when you could have gone to the gym or got your eating habits in order. So no one ever checks themselves on the life side. So again, when we say whole self, it's how do you become the very best person you can become? I'll point the finger at me first. I've got five pillars that I go by. God, health, family, business, and investing. If it doesn't fall within those five, I don't do it. I love golf. Golf takes four and a half hours to play around. I've got four little kids and a wonderful wife at home. I'd much rather spend that time with them than four and a half hours on the golf course. Mm. Principle number four is ask questions. And this is really <laughs> a good one for me because it speaks to the radical transparency at Scribe. Tell me if I'm right. This principle is being able to ask anyone any question without any fear of backlash. Is totally, that right? Totally. You know it and I know it. Everyone has worked somewhere where you can get fired for asking too many questions. It's literally the exact opposite here. You can get fired for not asking enough questions. And what I mean by that is mistakes are all right. Everyone's going to make a mistake. I get it. They're okay. Mistakes are going to happen. If you make a mistake because you were too prideful to ask a question because you didn't want to look dumb or stupid, as some people would say, that you can't be a part of this tribe ask questions. And that was specifically put into the culture Bible by me. I have built a career out of asking questions and I got to give love to my third grade teacher, Mrs. Dedeck. She said to me, there are no dumb or stupid questions. And man, I've been asking questions ever since. Someone challenged me on this once. They said, JT, that's not true. There is such a thing as dumb or stupid question. I said, give me an example. And they said, what about the person who asked the same question over and over again? I said, no, 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 you've got it confused. The person who's asking the question over and over again is not the dumb or stupid person. It's the person who continues to answer the same question <laughs> over and over again. Right. I go, because you've not realized that this person doesn't care. You may not be explaining yourself correctly, or this person's not taking notes, but there's something to be learned in every question that is asked, in my opinion. So ask questions is massive. And last piece on this too, transparency, what, what you said. A lot of times too, you can eliminate questions in transparency. So everyone knows our salaries in the company. Everyone knows my salary and all salaries are transparent. We also, every month, we post the income statement for everyone to see how much money came into the company, what the expenses are, how much did we spend on coffee? Every dollar that is spent in this company, you can see on the income statement monthly. Mm. So are you saying that any employee is free to also ask or question you if they disagree with something that you said or did? That's the person you should question the most <laughs> is, is me. I never want to be the smartest person in the room. Again, I'll go back to, I have three rules of leadership. You heard me touch on this earlier. Rule number one, surround the company with people far smarter than myself. Rule number two, surround myself with people far smarter than myself. And then rule number three, repeat rules one and two. And so I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I will always ask questions. I'm surrounded by writers. Every person in our company has a college degree except me. 75% of the people in this company have master's degrees. And there are many a day where I'm sitting in a room and a certain vocabulary word is used and I have no clue what it means. And I'll stop the meeting. I'll say, hey, stop, time out. What's that mean? And I do it for two reasons. One, because I don't know what the hell it means. But the, <laughs> the, the second reason is I want people to see 
There are no dumb or stupid questions. Ask questions to the basic of levels. I'm very passionate about asking questions. Yeah. So I want to transition to something that you've been really outspoken about, and that's remote work. So with the <laughs> pandemic, yeah, I, I knew I was going to strike a chord with you here, but <laughs> we've been forced to close our offices. You just told me before I hit record that you know you shut down the first time, and now Texas is on its second lockdown, and you've been forced to go remote again. So as we know, if you follow the news, Twitter and Facebook and Square and big tech firms have come out and declared, hey, we're going to make this a permanent corporate policy. So you disagree with this trend. Why is that? Think of it this way. There's a reason why we call ourselves a tribe. A tribe is a group of people that come together for the greater good of one another. And so for me, I'm not bashing remote work. I actually believe it's a dynamic, meaning remote is good, but also having a place where you all can come together during the week is even better. And so I'll give you the story of how this even came to be. When I first joined the company, they were 13 months old and 90% of the company was remote. And I said to the two co-founders, I'm like, this isn't going to work. We're trying to disrupt an industry. We're a startup and knowledge share is not moving fast enough with us all being remote. And while Facebook and all these other big tech companies are quick to tell you all of the benefits that come with being remote, people don't want to talk about the downside that comes with remote as well. And I'll give you a great example. If Susan is in that office across the hall from me right now, and I've got a quick question, I can dip in there. Hey, Susan, what about XYZ, blah, blah, blah. Boom, I got an answer. I'm done. Now, if we're remote, I got to get on Slack, find out if Susan is on. If she's on, great. If not, I don't get a response. Then I got to find time to talk to her later. Then we got to put together a Zoom call. That's just inefficient. And people don't want to recognize that. You know what? The commute to work that goes away, yes, that is a positive. The fact that you can shut down and be right at home afterwards, that's a positive. There's so many positives that come with remote, and I'm with that. I'm right there with you, people. But the other side of this that people don't talk about is you find a lot of the inefficiencies as well. Great example of this. When you go fully remote, and I've had so many CEOs reach out to me and go, damn, JT, you were dead on with this one. You start to realize that, you're like, what the hell does Steve do? You know, when Steve was in person with you, you felt like Steve was this massive contributor, but now all of a sudden remote, you're like, I don't even know what this guy does. Why is he even with the company? But no one wants to talk about the downside. And that's the culture we live in. Everybody wants to pump everything up and see it as a benefit. So I believe it's a combination. In full transparency, we actually are a dynamic culture. So 90% of the company is based here in Austin. But even in Austin, we only come into the workplace, our office, two to three days a week. Most of us here on Mondays, and on Fridays, and then Wednesday is Wolf Days, we call it the, where you bring your dog to work. Uh, so it's a dynamic of work from home when you want to, come into the office two to three days a week, but it's a combination thereof. And then the last part of this that goes into it is, I don't care what hours you work. If you come into the office at 10 a.m. to avoid traffic, great. If you stay till seven, great. It's not about hours that you put in, it's about results. If you're driving results, if you're accomplishing your role and your responsibilities, that's all that matters. You want to take a half a day during the day to go to your child's performance at school or go to a doctor's appointment, do your thing. No one's going to be checking on you. If you're driving results and you're getting your job done, that's all that matters. Mm, Yeah. It's a healthy, healthy blend that we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have my goodness, demonstrated an incredible amount of resilience in your life and as a leader. (laughs) I can't imagine building a company up to becoming a a million-dollar company and then losing everything, you know, like you said, and hitting dirt poor again and having to (laughs) rebuild again. So you've gone through the ringer a few times. And here we are in the middle of a pandemic with, on top of that, racial injustice and social unrest and an economic downturn. What's your best advice for business owners trying to stay resilient during these crazy, stressful times? First and foremost, I'll speak on the people. Put your people first. Be transparent. Don't go hide. Don't disappear. 
you know, and I am speaking to the leaders, the owners, the business owners, the founders, and even if you're in any type of leadership within the company, especially during remote, because you're automatically going to be less visible because we're remote. Do not disappear. If you got to have an all hands every week, have an all hands every week. Do not disappear. Be transparent. Let people know where they stand. When we first went to the whole shelter in place back in March, I had an all hands meeting and I let everybody know right off the bat. I said, look, here's how this is about to go down. No one in this company is going to be laid off. We are not going to lay off one person. Why that was important for me is I remember being in the mortgage industry during the credit crisis. And I remember having to drive around and do layoffs for people and lay people off. And it was literally the worst thing I've ever had to do in my career. It was worse than losing my million dollars is having to let people go and lay them off, especially when they were doing a great job. So first and foremost, we let everyone know you're safe. You won't be laid off. All is well. We're going to make it through this. And so I would say to all those business owners and everyone, you know, if you have to pivot, you have to shift, figure out what you need to shift and pivot to. I understand some of you are going to have to make layoffs, you know, make those tough calls, make them early and be transparent with people. Let them know where they stand. Don't have people constantly wondering. I saw this the other day. I don't know what company it was. I thought it was, oh, Nike. I thought it was the worst thing in the world. The CEO came out on the conference call when they were reporting quarterly earnings, and he said, there will be layoffs in September. What? So now I got to sit for two months and wonder, am I on the list? Am I going to make it? What do I do? And especially in the environment we're living in, it's not like you can just jump ship and go find another job that easy. A lot of places aren't hiring. No one's doing in-person interviews. So when I saw that, I was like, that's a horrific example of leadership. Either make the call now and say, hey, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be doing layoffs next week, and we've got severance packages. But to say you're not going to do it until September, the anxiety I have to live with coupled with the protest, coupled with the virus disruption, I'm like, come on, that was a bad move. But yeah, yeah just one man's opinion. Yeah. No, it's, it's now a two-man opinion because uh, that does not speak <laughs> to being people first, right? Not to mention, like you said, I mean, we already are dealing with the mental health issues of employees trying to juggle and balance their lives and personal lives and work lives because now everything is together, right? You're, yes. You got kids running around the house now. You're working in anyway. So yes, I love the fact that everything has to come out as transparent and honest. And that speaks to character to me. Yes. Mentioning servant leadership, to me, that's the pinnacle of the mountain. When you climb the realms of the leadership ranks and you reach the pinnacle of the mountain as as a servant leader, you have to be able to speak to the good, the bad, what's going on. Here's the projections and set people's expectations so that they're not walking on eggshells. And you have to be in leadership. You're not perfect. You have to be able to admit your mistakes. I know for me personally, most of my lessons, most of my teaching is done by way of mistakes I've made over my 25 plus year career. From personal mistakes to, you know, early on, man, I couldn't hold a relationship. Could not hold a relationship to save my life. I was a monster. And I don't use any excuses, but I didn't have healthy relationships to use as a guide to understand, okay, what's a good relationship look like? So I teach through my mistakes, mistakes I made as a first time president of a software company, mistakes I made in sales. Everything I do is teaching through mistakes. And I'll share this last part of this. I'm blown away that we had the audacity as a society. We always say you learn the most through your mistakes but no one shares their mistakes. And I never understood that. You know, you can go to any blog post, any magazine, and they'll tell you top 10 things Elon Musk does to be successful. Top five things Steve Jobs did. I don't want their success list. I want your top five mistake list. Give me that one. But no one shares their mistakes. So I do my teaching, coaching, and mentoring through sharing of mistakes. That's another thing, a part of the culture. We don't train. You train your horse, you train your dogs, you train your body. We teach coach and mentor. Mm. Speaking of coaching and mentor, let's touch on your work with the community. And you know, you're passionate about creating opportunities for at-risk youth. Tell us a little bit, why is that so important to you? You know, I said in the beginning, growing up, rapper, athlete, drug dealer, 
were my options out of my circumstances. And unfortunately, I sucked at all three. And so (laughs) no, no one told me about entrepreneurship, being an executive business. So I'm very passionate about you don't know what you don't know. And I'll challenge the educational system here for a second. Here's something that I've never understood. Why don't we have a class called show and tell? And not show and tell like my six-year-old where she brings her favorite toy and she tells you about it. No, show and tell. Show me a certified financial planner. Tell me how I can become one. This should be your freshman year in high school. Show me an attorney. Tell me how I can become one. Show me a pharmaceutical rep. Tell me how I can become one. So show and tell, you know, I know in virus disruption right now, it's not as popular, but even before the virus disruption, I used to always say this, show me how to shake a hand. So many people don't even know how to shake hands. Look me in the eye, speak up, say hello, greet the person. So show and tell. It's a travesty that, and this is a fact, 40% of all graduating high school seniors will not go to college. I don't care where you fall on the economic ladder. 40% will not go to college. Here's what's sad about that. You graduate from high school, you're not going to go to college, but we expect you to go out into the world and be a productive member of society. And we really haven't taught you. And, you know, because we're still teaching Columbus Day when we know damn well he didn't discover America. So it's show and tell. I can't become something that I don't even know exists. And where I'm very passionate about that, and I said this on stage at Conscious Capitalism, how am I supposed to know what organic food is when there's no whole foods in my community? It wasn't until I personally was 34 years old that I knew what a barista was. Mm. How am I supposed to know that I can even aspire to be that if I don't even know what it is? There's no Chase Bank in the neighborhoods I grew up in, but there's a checks cash, a pawn shop in those neighborhoods. There's a liquor store. So my whole initiative has always been, I believe if people just know what's possible, they can strive to achieve that. Everyone's not going to want to. I know I can't change the world, but if I can get 35%, I'm happy. Wow. JT, there's a tradition here on the show where we talk about love and fear and love meaning practical love, you know, lifting people up, supporting them, developing them, giving them a voice which I believe is all of the things that kind of describe the culture of Scribe Media. And that's counter to fear, which can show up in dehumanizing ways, you know, intimidation, coercion, control, micromanagement, things like that. And here we are, it's 2020. Fear is still prevalent in how organizations are run. Why do you think people in positions of power still lead through fear? Because for most people, the fear of loss is greater than the fear of success. Hmm. And I truly believe that. It goes back to asking questions for me. If I want to do business with you and I ask, hey, would you do a million dollar contract with me? The worst that you can say is no. But what if you said yes? And people choose to be afraid of, ah, they'll probably say no. Ah, you know, I, I don't want to be rejected. Where I look at it is, hmm there's a high probability he'll say yes. And here's my attitude. When I was in sales and I was prospecting the Fortune 500, that was my job. I had to prospect the Fortune 500. My attitude was this. If the first person says no, I got 499 more people to go through. Somebody's going to say yes. And for me, no just meant not right now. So in my opinion, it's a mindset. I live by a formula. Mindset, choices, and hard work equals success. And that mindset is what keeps me going. Now, I do have the incredible benefit that when I was a kid and I would come home from school at night and I'd say, are we going to eat dinner? I would be told no because there was no food to eat. Now, that no hurt because I was a kid and there was nothing I could do about it. You telling me, no, you're not going to do business with me now, I'll find somebody else that's going to do business. So I'll knock on every door in the state of Texas until I find somebody to say yes, if that's what it takes. Mm. JT, I could talk to you for another hour, but I know we got to get going. So we bring <laughs> it home with one final question. And the tradition here is that you close us out the way you want to. What's that one thing, your most important takeaway about your life or your work? that we can walk away with? I'll leave you with this one because I share this with my kids. It has served me well. 
when I was a kid, I eliminated three words from my vocabulary, hope, wish, and luck. And I'll go through each one of those. So hope. When I would hope my dad would show up to pick me up as a kid, he never showed. So hope never produced anything. When I would hope there was something to eat when I got home, never produced anything. So I stopped hoping a long time ago. And in fact, I've got a friend of mine that's a pastor and he challenged me one day. He goes, JT, hope. He goes, I I preached hope in my sermon 16 times last Sunday. I said, okay, fair enough. Watch this. I said, do you want me to hope there's a God or do you want me to believe there's a God? And he looks at me, keep in mind, this is a pastor. He looks at me, he goes, damn, I I never thought of it from that that angle. (laughs) And so I don't do hope. Hope, it doesn't produce anything. I believe. If you believe, it forces execution. If you believe you can have that big house, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to execute to get that house. If you believe you can have that VP role or whatever it is, you're going to have to do something to make that come true. You can't just sit back and hope. You can hope forever. Y'all hoping win the lottery and nothing's going to happen. And then wish. Wishing is even worse. Oh, I wish I had the big house. Oh, I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had the nice career. I'm so passionate about wish. And this one's a big one for us. This goes into our household. As I said, I got four kids. So we have a lot of birthdays in our house. When we put the birthday cake down and we light the candles, we don't tell our kids to make a wish. You make a goal. There's no wishing in our house. We don't do wishes because it does not produce anything. You can wish all day, wishing without execution, wishing without belief does not produce anything. And then the last one, luck, it's a disgusting word to me. People who will say, oh, the lady that won the $100 million lottery, she's so lucky. No, she's not. She executed. She bought a ticket. Hmm. Hmm. JT, if people want to connect with you, if my listeners want to just maybe exchange some communication with you, how can you do that? Best place to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm not an Instagram, Facebook, Twitter guy. LinkedIn, for me, seems to be the most professional of all the social media platforms. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can email me direct, jt at scribemedia.com. So not hard to find. And don't forget to pick up JT's book. Once again, it's called I Got There, How a Mixed-Race Kid Overcame Racism, Poverty, and Abuse to Arrive at the American Dream. And he is true to life and embodiment of that title. (laughs) And I thank you for joining This has been, I got to be honest with you, one of the most authentic and real and raw conversations I've had. And I learned from you. So I appreciate your time and just being you, JT. (laughs) It's been an honor to have you on the show. I appreciate that. It truly humbled and flattered. And I appreciate you having me on. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.